Imagine a family gathering, a reunion, or even a funeral. Anytime people get together who are related to one another, conversation sooner or later will get around to the family tree. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, some of them no doubt characters whose exploits only get better with the telling. The younger members of the clan, those not old enough to have known Grandma and Granddad, Aunt Emma or Uncle Jess, benefit from hearing these stories. It's always interesting to learn where we come from and to discover about the people who inhabit our ancestry. More than being merely interesting, however, knowing something of our family history is important because it helps us to realize that we did not come from a vacuum. Though we cannot say that each of us is merely the sum of many parts, it is important to know that we come from a family context. In the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, we see that the evangelist wanted his first readers and readers of every age to know the true beginnings of Messiah, Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, son of Joseph and Mary, son of God. Though Jesus is not in our biological family tree, Matthew wants us to know the story of the Savior, and through this story to know him and to find salvation in him. Unlike any of the other gospels, Matthew begins with a birth record or genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew's primary purpose in giving us Jesus' family history is to establish Jesus' lineage to Abraham, the great ancestor of the Jewish race, and to King David, the originator of the royal line through which the Messiah would come. We thus learn that the Messiah is truly a part of the history of Israel, a member of the family, so to speak. He will not be a savior from the outside, disconnected or aloof, but someone with royal Israelite blood in his heart. There are elements of the genealogy that are worth noting. First of all, a genealogy has an almost sing-song pattern which becomes predictable. A was the father of B, B the father of C, C the father of D, and so on. But Matthew breaks the cadence several times by introducing the names of five women. In verse 3 we read, Judah became the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. In verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz became the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. In verse 6, David became the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba. Finally, in verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. By breaking the rhythm of Jesus' ancestral recitation, Matthew is telling us that in order to save the world from sin, God interrupted the pattern of normal human procreation. God brought the Messiah into the world in a most marvelous, though simple way, by the action of the Holy Spirit and the cooperation of human beings. The fifth woman in the list we know already, Mary, the mother of Jesus. The other four require some comment. Tamar's story is told in Genesis 38, where she tricked her father-in-law Judah into giving her a rightful heir. She gave birth to twins, one of whom was Perez, an ancestor of Jesus. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho who gave shelter to Joshua's men sent to spy out the Promised Land prior to conquest. Her story is found in Joshua 2. Ruth, a Moabite, became the grandmother of King David, as we learn in the closing chapter of the book of Ruth. The story of Bathsheba is found largely in the second book of Samuel. A victim of David's lust and a widow because of his treachery, 
Bathsheba gave birth to Solomon, the wise and powerful successor of David. None of these women are in the same class as Sarah, Rachel, or Rebekah. None of them are even Israelites, with the possible exception of Bathsheba, who was married to a Hittite. Yet each of them was part of the line that led to the longed-for Messiah. There's another irony found in the characters in Jesus' family tree. In the ninth verse, we read that Jotham was the father of Ahaz, one of the kings of Judah, and not a very good one. According to 2 Kings 16, Ahaz offered sacrifices to other gods and even offered up his own son as a holocaust. Even so, God offered him a sign of protection from his enemies. Through the words of Isaiah, he was told, the virgin pregnant and about to bear a son shall name him Emmanuel. Matthew himself will cite this verse because he sees its fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. As for Ahaz, neither his weakness nor his wickedness could impede the ultimate fruition of the sign he would not accept. One final aspect of the genealogy is worth mentioning. The Babylonian exile, in a way, was Israel's return to the slavery of Egypt some 500 years before Jesus. Because of their repeated infidelity over the centuries since Exodus, God's people faced the loss of their promised land. Though the exile was not permanent, the experience was a reminder to heed the prophets and to obey God. Matthew uses the exile as one of the dividing lines of his genealogy to say two things. That the Messiah has come to free us from the spiritual exile caused by our sins, and that the Messiah's own roots in the soil and history of Israel will enable him to relate to the people he has come to save. If the first 17 verses of the Gospel tell us of Jesus' human ancestry, the next section tells us of his divine origins. Here we learn that Jesus was really adopted into the lineage of Joseph and that Mary conceived him through the Holy Spirit. Just as Matthew threw us a curve by shaking up his genealogy with unexpected people like Tamar and Rahab, now he tells us the Messiah is God's son. Joseph was the first to be caught off guard by God's great imagination. Betrothed to Mary but not living with her, Joseph probably assumes that her pregnancy is the result of infidelity or seduction. Imagine his sadness as he considers his options. Rather than expose her to shame by carrying out the law expounded in Deuteronomy 22, Joseph chooses to divorce her quietly and thus end any dreams he had of a life with Mary. There is no question of his forgiving her apparent infidelity and marrying her anyway. That Joseph chose to follow the law quietly is probably an indication of his love for her. Surely he had no desire to see her stoned to death. In this decision, Joseph is described as a righteous man. His righteousness means that he followed the spirit, if not the entire letter of the law, by deciding not to divorce Mary. Ironically, it was Joseph's spirit of obedience that saved his marriage. Just after he had determined to divorce Mary, an angel spoke to Joseph in a dream, telling him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. For it is through the Holy Spirit that this child has been conceived in her. Like his namesake in Genesis, Joseph pays attention to dreams. More than once in those first two chapters of Matthew will he receive vital information from God through dreams. The angel in the dream adds that the child will be a son and he is to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
in the two verses that comprise the dream, we are given valuable information by Matthew. According to scripture commentator Donald Sr., there are three points to consider. First, we know from the genealogy that the child is not actually related to Joseph's lineage by blood ties. But now because of Joseph's cooperation, the child is adopted into the line of Judah and of David, and this makes Jesus a kind of outsider to his heritage. But Matthew has already prepared us for this by introducing some other outsiders, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. He may also be preparing us to meet the Magi, a centurion and a Canaanite woman later in the gospel. Donald Sr.'s second point about Joseph's dream is that through the Holy Spirit, God is the initiator of actions. By God's power, Sarah conceived Isaac, Hannah conceived Samuel, and now Mary, without the aid of any man, has conceived the Messiah. Here we might also recall the action of God's Spirit in Genesis, hovering over the void at the beginning of creation. Now, in Jesus, there's a new creation. Third, the name given by the angel reveals the nature of his messianic mission. Jesus is a derivative of the name Joshua, which means God's help, usually, but it can be translated as God's salvation. The angel tells Joseph that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Jesus will underscore this meaning himself at the Last Supper when he says, This is my blood which will be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. After reporting the dream, Matthew tells us, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Already, Matthew has introduced two of his favorite themes, dreams and fulfillment quotations from the Hebrew scriptures. Three times in chapters 1 and 2, Joseph receives information in these dreams. These revelations generally have a pattern, an angel's command, the reason for the command, and Joseph's obedience. Joseph's obedient reactions to the dreams underscore for us another aspect of his righteousness. Not only is he obedient to the law of God, he is also a model disciple, sensitive to his own subconscious as he sleeps. It is interesting to compare the reactions of Joseph in Matthew and of Mary in Luke. Mary answers, I am the handmaid of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Luke's infancy narrative informs us that Mary fully puts her words into action. For his part, Joseph says nothing but simply does what he is supposed to do, even if he doesn't always understand. Taken together, the portraits of Joseph and Mary in both infancy accounts are a lesson in faithful discipleship. The other of Matthew's favorite devices is fulfillment quotations. He uses them throughout the gospel, four times within the first two chapters in verse 23 of chapter 1 and verses 15, 18, and 23 of chapter 2. Matthew's intent is to show the seamless connection between God's promises and actions in the Old Covenant and their fulfillment in Jesus, Emmanuel. God is with us, and God will save. At the beginning of chapter 2, we look in on a scene of Eastern Magi paying a visit to the Holy City. The term Magi probably indicates that they were astrologers or astronomers who looked to the stars as guides to major events. Indeed, they have interpreted a particular star as an omen of the birth of a new king of the Jews. Jerusalem is the home of the king, Herod the Great, 
who ruled from 37 to 4 BC. A tyrant, Herod, was also a master builder, whose crowning achievement was the reconstruction of the temple in 19 BC. The question of the Magi, where is the newborn king of the Jews, puts Herod and all Jerusalem on the notice that the authentic king has come. Though the star seen by the Magi leads the eastern visitors to the general vicinity of the birthplace, it is only a natural phenomenon and the Magi must ask for more specific directions from those who would know, the people of Jerusalem. Scripture takes up where nature stops. A note of warning is sounded when Herod becomes disturbed by the quest of the Magi. Notice that all Jerusalem is disturbed with him. Later in chapter 21, the whole city of Jerusalem will be shaken and wonder who Jesus is as he enters the city. Herod calls together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asks them where the Messiah is to be born. Ironically, Jesus' future enemies, the ones who will arrange his death, are the ones who know the scriptures well enough to answer Herod's question in Bethlehem of Judea. Having recovered sufficiently from his shock, Herod devises a scheme in which the Magi will serve as his dupes. He bids them to report to him the whereabouts of the child once they've found him, so that I too may go and do him homage. Herod's intention, of course, is not to bow before the Messiah, but to kill him. The Magi find the child with his mother in a house. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' family lives in Bethlehem, and so Jesus is found in a residence, not in a shelter for animals, as in the Gospel of Luke. The Magi do Jesus' homage by prostrating themselves. Their homage to the Messiah at the beginning of the Gospel anticipates the acceptance of the good news by the Gentiles, spoken of at the end of the Gospel. After the homage, the Magi are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, so they leave Judea and return home by another road. As the Magi had been warned in a dream, so now Joseph receives a similar warning to avoid Herod. He is to take his family to Egypt for an unspecified length of time because Herod will try to kill the child. Joseph immediately flees Bethlehem with Jesus and Mary, not even waiting for mourning. They remain in Egypt until Herod's death in 4 BC. Free to return home, their journey affords the next fulfillment statement in verse 15. Out of Egypt I call my son. This is a quotation from Hosea 11.1, referring to Israel. As Israel was called out of Egypt to become a free people, so now Jesus is called out of the same place to bring about a people freed by grace and mercy. The slaughter of the innocents is not described in detail, but is cloaked by another of Matthew's formula quotations, this one from Jeremiah 31.15. In this passage, Rachel, the mother of Jacob, or Israel, is weeping because her children are going into exile. Ramah, the place of Rachel's death, is also the place where her children, the Israelites, gathered to march to exile in Babylon. Matthew deftly uses this citation to unfold the experiences of the Messiah with the experiences of his own people. He also suggests a connection with the boy Moses, who escaped death when Pharaoh ordered the elimination of all the male Hebrew children in Exodus chapter 1. Herod's death is followed closely upon the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. For the third time, Joseph is visited in a dream. He is told to return to Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. The use of the plural, those who sought, 
includes Herod, of course, but it also means the chief priests and the scribes of verse 4. If so, Matthew is giving us a glimpse of a later plot hatched by the chief priests and the elders of the people to arrest Jesus. Though the tormentors of the child Jesus are dead, a new generation of enemies will arise against him. In place of the cruel Herod, the Romans have set up his son Archelaus, no less evil, as ruler of Judea. Joseph fears returning to the area and is warned in a dream to go instead to Galilee. He, Mary, and Jesus settle in Nazareth. In the Lucan tradition, Joseph and Mary are from Nazareth. They go to Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus and return to Nazareth. In Matthew, the couple is from Bethlehem, where Jesus is born, but flee to Nazareth. Both traditions agree that Jesus is a Nazarene. Matthew backs up this fact with another fulfillment formula, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Interestingly, this citation cannot be traced to any passage in the Hebrew Scriptures. That is why Matthew attributes it to the prophets and not to a single author. Daniel J. Harrington suggests three possible derivations for the designation Nazarene, from the town of Nazareth itself, from the word Nazir, meaning devoted to God, and from the word Nesher, meaning branch, referring to the Messiah in chapter 11 of Isaiah. All three possibilities are appropriate as Jesus is indeed devoted to God, a fruitful branch from the stump of Jesse, and a resident of Nazareth. The first chapter of Matthew tells us of the origins of this fruitful branch. He is the son of God, but he's also human, the son of Mary, adopted by Joseph into an intriguing ancestry. Chapter 2 gives us the gospel in seed form. Just as the foreign magi seek him out, so will Jesus at the end of the gospel send his disciples into all parts of the world to deliver the invitation to God's kingdom. <music>